interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Three young singers who soared to the heights of show business on the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an Iowa snow flurry. The singers were identified as Richie Valens, 17, Buddy Holly, 22, and J.P. Richardson, known professionally as the Bait Bopper. The aircraft chartered from the Dwyer Flying Service crashed near Mason City, ironically the setting for the prominent musical The Music Man. The pilot, Roger Peterson of Clear Lake, Iowa, was also killed. The three singers had appeared at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa last night and were on their way to Fargo, North Dakota. Their small chartered plane crashed in a lonely farmyard about 15 miles northwest of Mason City. Cause of the crash was due to inclement weather conditions. Details upcoming from Action Central News. It's Tommy Canelli, and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. After that intro, I'm not sure I need to do much more of an explanation, but I'm going to anyway. I'm going to tell you the story of the winter dance party of 1959 that took the lives of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper along with pilot Roger Peterson. It's the night American youth was devastated, and some people call it the night the music died. I refer to it as the night the music actually came alive. It was one of the saddest days in American history, and it was a huge loss to American youth. It was probably the first time that American youth had lost its innocence. Keep in mind throughout this show that we're talking about the era of the late 50s and the early 60s. As you people know that are loyal listeners of the show, I do a lot of research on every single episode that I do in in many, many hours. This episode is by far the most research I have ever done in my entire life. I have been doing research for over three months on this one episode. I went on vacation with my mother and my sister at the end of summer of 2022, and we decided to visit the Buddy Holly crash site and then go over to Surf Ballroom, which is where they last played that night. It was something about that visit that set in with me that made me want to know more. I'm going to get into the surf ballroom, have copies of the autopsy reports. I have a copy of the re-examination of the crash in 2015. And I have the original crash report from the Civil Aeronautics Board in 1959. I've also talked to many pilots. I've talked to numerous people in regards to this show. You're going to hear clips like you did at the beginning. You're going to hear some music clips as well. And I need to give credit to those people 
before we go any farther. Silhouette music for the day the music died vinyl. Delphi, Richie Valens in concert at Pacoima Junior High School with Bob Keane. Red Robinson, a huge shout out to Red Robinson, who has a podcast called Legends and the Day the Music Died and was kind enough to give me complete freedom to use his interviews in regards to this show. You're going to hear clips from the real Donna and the real Peggy Sue that I was able to get from not only ABC News, but London Live at 5 in the UK. If it wasn't for all those people, this show would not be what I hope it is for you guys. It was a huge loss to American youth in 1959 because prior to that, the only huge loss as an icon was James Dean. This event in history has been mentioned in numerous songs and films. As I said, we visited Surf Ballroom, which is the place Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper last performed on February 2nd. 1959, which is basically left as it was. If you've never been to, and you've been in the area of Clear Lake, Iowa, I cannot recommend it enough to take some time and stop and see the surf ballroom. It has a walking tour that you can do on your own. The original surf ballroom was located across the street from its current location. It officially opened to business on April 17th, 1933. But tragedy struck the surf ballroom in the early morning hours of April 20th, 1947, when a fire destroyed the building. Plans for its replacement were quickly underway, and a new surf ballroom was rebuilt across the street from the original location in what was the original venue's parking lot. The current surf ballroom reopened on July 1st, 1948. The ballroom that resembles an ocean beach club. It's so cool. The murals on the back walls are hand-painted to look like surf, swaying palm trees, sailboats, and lighthouses. The furnishings inside the surf ballroom are bamboo, and the ambiance is that of a South Sea island. The stage is surrounded by palm trees and the clouds projected overhead make it seem as if you're dancing outside under the stars. It is so cool. People that have taken that stage outside of those that were perished that night include the likes of Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Roy Orbison, Ricky Nelson, Conway Twitty, Ariel Speedwagon, Alice Cooper, the Doobie Brothers, ZZ Top, Leonard Skinner, and countless others. On January 27th of 2009, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum in Cleveland, Ohio, dedicated the surf ballroom as a historic rock and roll landmark. September 16th, 2011, the surf ballroom and museum is officially listed on the National Register of Historic Places. January 13th of 2021, the U.S. Department of the Interior designated the Surf Ballroom a natural historic landmark, recognizing its enduring role in the history of American music. 
The surf is Iowa's 27th National Historic Landmark. That is to give you a little update and a little background on the surf ballroom. The Winter Dance Party of 1959. Let's go there. It was three weeks, 21 days of one-night shows across the Midwest. It was nicknamed the Tour from Hell. The schedule was brutal. It zigzagged back and forth across the states. Here is the tour schedule to kind of give you an idea. As it kicked off January 23rd of 1959 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The next night goes to Kenosha, Wisconsin. And then to Mankato, Minnesota. Back to Wisconsin. Back to Minnesota for two nights. And then January 29th, it goes to Davenport, Iowa to Fort Dodge, Iowa, back to Duluth, Minnesota. And then on February 1st, Appleton, Wisconsin was canceled. February 2nd was Clear Lake, Iowa. The crash happened on February 3rd, 1959. After the February 3rd plane crash, the tour continued in Moorhead, Minnesota, and then came all the way back February 4th, 5th, and 6th in Sioux City, Des Moines, and Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And then February 7th was in Spring Valley, Illinois. February 8th in Chicago, Illinois. February 9th, Waterloo, Iowa. And then back February 10th to Dubuque, Iowa. On to Louisville, Kentucky, Canton, Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio. And then ended February 14th and 15th with the last two stops being in Peoria, Illinois, and Springfield, Illinois. 21 days, three weeks of going all over the Midwest in winter. People, they went through five buses and one even froze up. They were converted school buses with no heat. They were burning newspapers and laying on top of each other to stay warm as temperatures were as low as minus 30 degrees. Carl Bunch, the drummer, had gotten frostbite and was taken to a hospital and no longer made tour stops. Day 11 was Clear Lake, Iowa, which was an open date on that schedule. And they had come from Green Bay because of the other one that was canceled and then scheduled to head back to Moorhead, Minnesota, as I stated. J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. Big Bopper, he had a fever, and he had the flu. According to Carol Anderson, who was the surf ballroom manager, quote, they were all tired, freezing, and hungry, end quote. The surf ballroom got them food. The lineup for February 2nd, 1959, was the opening act of Frankie Sardo, and then Dion in the Belmonts, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and Buddy Holly. They played until midnight and performed two sets that night. The set list is debated big time. And it's hard to find out exactly what that playlist was and in what order. But several sites and many individuals have stated that all three, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and Buddy Holly, did Brown-Eyed Handsome Man as the last song of the night. 
Buddy Holly decided to charter a plane so he could do his laundry as he had no clean clothes and to get some rest. Originally, on that flight was supposed to be Buddy Holly, Tommy Alsop, and Waylon Jennings. The plane was a 1947 aircraft Beach Bonanza Model 35, which was a four-seater. And the cost is probably going to shock you. But remember, we're talking 1959. It was $36 each. Dion, from Dion in the Belmonts, Dion the, the Sings of the Wanderer, was asked if he wanted a seat. But he declined because he knew his parents were struggling with paying their rent, which was exactly $36. Big Bopper made a deal with Waylon Jennings for his seat, which Buddy approved. There was not a coin flip with Waylon Jennings, and I'm going to get to that in a second. Big Bopper and Waylon Jennings made a deal, people, and Waylon said, you can have my seat as long as it's okay with Buddy. Buddy goes to Waylon. Waylon says, yeah, that's good. So Buddy says, jokingly, I hope your old bus freezes up. Waylon replies in a jokingly matter, I hope your old plane crashes. This messed up Waylon for many years. Let's talk about that famous coin flip. Richie Valens was signing autographs when Tommy Alsup made a last check of the dressing room. And according to Alsup, which I have heard the interview, and Alsup has recently passed away, Richie said to Tommy, you going to let me fly? Tommy reached in his pocket and had a 50-cent piece and said, call it. Valens chose heads, and he won the toss. Carol Anderson, who is the manager of the surf ballroom, called Jerry Dwyer of Dwyer Flying Service Incorporated, which was located on the Mason City Airport. Anderson drove the three musicians to the airport. He shook Buddy Holly's hand and said, quote, I wish you only the best. End quote. He witnessed the plane take off. The plane took off at 12.55 a.m. on Tuesday, February 3rd, 1959. According to the Civil Aeronautics Board Aircraft Accident Report, which I have a copy of, the plane took off toward the south in a normal manner, turned and climbed to an estimated altitude of 800 feet, and then head in a northwesterly direction. When approximately five miles had been traveled, the tail light of the aircraft was seen to descend gradually until it disappeared from sight. Following this, many unsuccessful attempts were made to contact the aircraft by radio. Jerry Dwyer, owner of the plane, who was watching from a platform outside the tower, and Carol Anderson both saw the taillight gradually disappear. Dwyer requested to try to reach pilot Roger Peterson, but was unable to do so. The time was 1 a.m. Five minutes after takeoff. The sitting arrangements on that plane, pilot Roger Peterson and Buddy Holly were in the front. Back left was J.P. Richardson 
and Richie Valens sat behind Buddy Holly, who hated airplanes. The U.S. Weather Bureau issued a flash advisory of bad weather of the plane's route. Pilot Peterson never received the information and there were no witnesses of the crash. If you're familiar with this piece of history, you know that there was terrible weather that night. It was snowing. It was blowing. It was terrible conditions. The plane should have never been in the air. But it did take off. And the plane crashed in a field outside of Clear Lake, Iowa. The wreckage was not found until 9.35 a.m. that morning after Jerry Dwyer called Fargo, North Dakota and was told that the plane did not arrive. He went up in an aircraft and spotted the plane and called authorities. The right wing hit the ground first and tore a section of ground four inches deep and three feet long. People, the ground was frozen solid. It rolled from there till it came to rest against a barbed wire fence. The three singers were all thrown and the pilot was pinned in the wreckage. The two front seatbelts and the middle ones of the rear seat were torn free from their attach points. The two rear outside belts remained attached to their fittings. The buckle of one was broken and none of the webbing was broken, and no belts were about the occupants. Remember, we're talking 1959. So it looks like none of them were wearing their seatbelt. Roger Peterson, 21. Buddy Holly, 22. J.P. Richardson, 28. And Richie Valens, 17. Were all killed. The landing gear was still in the upright position. The aircraft was determined to be traveling at a high speed of 165 to 170 miles per hour at impact with the ground. And parts of the plane were found over a distance of 540 feet. The magneto switches were both in the off position. Magneto switches, they are permanent magnets and coils to produce high voltage to fire the aircraft's spark plugs, basically which allows the aircraft to run. And I've been told by numerous pilots that I've talked to that these being off is not good. It's a bad move. They could have been switched off in an emergency, but the engine should not run. So what could have happened with this plane? Bad weather is said to be the cause because the plane should not have been in the air. I can buy that. Pilots have said they believe the wings of the aircraft iced up and Roger Peterson could have been attempting an emergency landing and missed when his right wing hit the ground. I don't really have a comment on that because that's hard to determine in my point from all the research that I've done. Is it possible? Sure. But the crash reports state the plane was 90 degrees, which means the plane was on its side. It rolled to the right 
and it pitched down. The pilot was stated to not have enough training with flying this model aircraft to rely solely on instruments. Speaking again with many different pilots from those that do small planes to commercial pilots. This is something very difficult to do in training when your body is telling you the exact opposite when you're relying on instruments. The directional gyros were caged. Basically, they are directional indicators so you know which way you are going. But the pilot may have become confused with this plane's gyroscope, which operated in the exact opposite way of the other planes he piloted. Meaning, he would have believed he was ascending when in fact, he was descending. I've seen pictures of both of these different types of gyroscopes from those two model planes, and they are exactly opposite. So what could have happened? Could the plane have had ice on the wings? Sure. Is bad weather a cause? Absolutely it is. They've also said it's pilot air. Because these directional gyros were opposite from what he was used to, Pilot Peterson may have put the throttle down, so to speak, thinking they were rising and flew the plane right into the ground at 165 to 170 miles per hour. This story in from Clear Lake, Iowa. Three of the nation's top rock and roll singing stars, Richie Valens, J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson, and Buddy Holly, died today with their pilot in the crash of a chartered plane. Following an appearance before 1,000 fans in Clear Lake last night, they chartered a plane at the Mason City Airport and took off at 1.50 a.m. for Fargo, North Dakota. Their four-seat, single-engine plane never made it off the ground. It crashed minutes later. It skidded across the snow for some 500 feet, and Holly, 21, and Valens, a 17-year-old recording sensation, were thrown from the wreckage. The wreckage, meanwhile, was was not discovered until long after dawn. The other members of the troop, including singer Frankie Sardo, the Crickets, and Dion and the Belmonts, had made that trip by bus. Carol Anderson, the manager of the surf ballroom, had to identify the bodies of the musicians. It is believed that the wreckage was taken to a storage somewhere in Mason City, Iowa, as the plane was owned by Jerry Dwyer, who passed away in 1993, and his wife Barbara passed away in 2021. They did have children. From what I can understand, the wreckage is still somewhere in Mason City, Iowa. And if anybody out there knows anybody that knows where that wreckage is, I would love for you to reach out to me as cannot tell you how much I want to get eyes on that wreckage. And just take a look at this piece of American history after all this research. The rest of the members of the tour found out in their hotel lobby the next morning on a television when they asked what rooms Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson were in and then heard it on the television. The tour continued the very next night. Waylon Jennings sang Buddy songs and then 15-year-old Bobby V filled in for Buddy. Let's hear an interview with Red Robinson and Bobby V. Robinson and these are the legends of rock. Bobby V got his big break filling in for Buddy Holly after his tragic accident. I asked Bobby how he felt. The scene for me is that my knees were knocking and I, I, I was scared to death. I, uh, it was 
every imaginable emotion. It was from my own stage fright to the euphoria of being on stage. Um, when I think back on it, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm certain that in 1986 that would never happen. Right. The show wouldn't go on. But I think that was part of our tradition at that point, point the, you know, uh, hell or high water, the show will go on. Leading up to that, had you pursued a, um, a record career on your own? I mean, before, obviously, you were brought into the spot. No. No? I was just, uh, I, I was one of those guys that used to go to all the shows that came through town. My older brother and I, he played guitar too. Oh. And we used to go to all the shows, and we had a little band called The Shadows. And the local radio station, after they heard of the tragedy, um, asked for local talent to help fill in. And we called the station and ended up being on stage that night, actually opening the show. And uh, it was several, well, a few months after that, uh, the, there was a fellow in the audience that night that started booking us. And I'd been writing some songs, and I went in and cut a song that I wrote called Susie Baby. And one of those crazy things, you know, the thing, whoa, you they're playing it? It's number one? And we started getting calls from major companies, yeah. Liberty Records, and uh, signed with them in 1960. Who did most of the arrangements in those days? Was it Snuffy Garrett? Or? Snuffy produced all of my songs. Snuffy had been a friend of uh, Buddy Holly's. He was a, di a disc jockey in Lubbock, Texas, and had moved out to Los Angeles. And he heard Susie Baby and thought, boy... That sounds a little bit like the Crickets and Buddy Holly, and, and so he signed us because of that. And I started working with Snuffy, and he produced all the records, and Ernie Freeman did the arranging. Bobby V's Rubber Ball was the first of a string of hits in the early 60s. Here, Bobby tells us about one of his biggest influences. To this day, I'm still a big Buddy Holly fan. I think that, for me anyway, you know, a lot of people say Elvis Presley or, or whoever. For me, Buddy Holly was the rock and roller. Never made a bad record. Uh, he was full of energy and so uh, innovative. Wrote all of his tunes. And um, I met the Crickets when I moved to uh, Los Angeles, or started recording in Los Angeles. Jerry Allison, the drummer, played on Rubber Ball and a few of my things, and Sonny Curtis. Those guys were always around. And it was a natural thing. I, I loved their music, and, and I... My music, I never really was have ever been a rock and roll singer. I'm a pop singer, but my roots were in rock and roll, you right. know, in my, in somewhere in my mind, I'm just out there screaming away, you know, with my guitar. And so that was fun for me because it gave me a chance to go do some rocking fifties rock and roll, which I love. And you, your career spanned such an era. And I want to get to that right now from uh, 59 and that uh, the tragedy that, you know, that took Buddy Holly's life, your career moved forth, but you went through a lot longer period of time than a lot of the artists. When the British invasion hit, it seemed to me that Bobby V said, okay, I'm going over to England. It seems like you took your sound over to England and uh, you, you, you stayed in the charts all through it all. Well, I was lucky. I, uh, the biggest selling record that I had in my whole career was Come Back When You Grow Up, which was the late 60s. <clears throat> but we were very fortunate through the early 60s. I uh, had uh, three, four records a year that were in the charts. Some of them big hits, and some of them were just kind of uh, you know, the bottom 100, but they made it nevertheless. saw a picture here, and I think it's out of the, um, a British publication, April 1964. And there in England with the Beatles and Dusty Springfield is Bobby V. I've never even seen this. I'd love to have a copy of this. <laughs> you know, after all these years, I'm finally starting to put stuff together and and, and uh, say, hey, that was kind of neat. You know, I, it was all in a box somewhere. You know, I'd love to get a copy of this. So, who were the four who perished in that crash? We're going to start with pilot Roger Peterson, who was 21. Roger was employed by Dwyer Flying Service as a commercial pilot and flight instructor. 
He had been flying since 1954 and had over 700 flying hours, approximately 52 hours of dual instrument training and passed his written exam. He had passed the written exam, but he was not yet qualified to fly in weather that required flying solely by reference to instruments. He was married to his high school sweetheart, Deanne Lenz, and he was pinned inside the wreckage and had to be excavated. Pilot Roger Peterson is buried at Buena Vista Memorial Park Cemetery in Buena Vista, Iowa. Jules Perry, J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. the Big Bopper, who is 28. His songs Chantilly Lace and White Lightning, which became George Jones' first number one hit in 1959. He started as a DJ at Lamar College and studied pre-law. He was married to Adrienne Joy Tetsy Winner, and she passed in 2004. They had a daughter, Deborah, who passed in 2006, and a son, J.P. Richardson Jr., who died in 2013, who was born just months after the crash. J.P. was hired full-time in 1949 at KTRM, which is now KZZB, and he quit college. He got his name after seeing several college students doing the bop and decided to call himself the Big Bopper. He is credited for creating the first music video all the way back in 1958. J.P. played guitar, and when he heard the songs Purple People Eater by Sheb Woolley and Witch Doctor by Ross Bagdasarian. He put them two together and recorded a song called The Purple People Eater Meets the Witch Doctor. Why do I mention that? Because Chantilly Lace was originally the B-side of this record. At the time of the plane crash, Big Bopper was building a recording studio at his home in Baymont, Texas, and was planning on investing in a radio station. He had written 20 songs. He was thrown approximately 40 feet into the field beyond where the plane came to rest. And according to the autopsy report, his personal effects include a gold wedding ring, one small gold-colored flat key, a pair of dice, a guitar pick, a black billfold containing numerous cards, receipts, a Texas driver's license, musician's ID cards, and $272.53 in cash. He was wearing a red checkered flannel shirt and light blue cotton pants and no jacket. There's a conspiracy that was around J.P. Richardson in the crash. Two months after the crash, an Iowa farmer finds a 22 caliber pistol that had been fired a couple times that belonged to Buddy Holly. In 2007, J.P. Richardson Jr. called Dr. Bill Bass, who is a rock star in the field of forensic anthropology. Richardson wondered if his father had survived the crash and was going for help or was he shot? So the body was exhumed. The body was in remarkable condition. JP Jr. was there when the casket was opened as he had never met his father because he was born just months after the crash. Imagine that moment. 
as the first time you see your parent is when they bring them up from the grave. They did an x-ray autopsy from the top of the skull to the bottom of the feet. The big bopper was fractured from top to bottom with over 200 fractures. Dr. Bass concluded there was no way he could have survived and he found no indication of any gunshot wounds. That conspiracy was put to rest. I'm sure that gun was fired. Back in those days, those guys could have been messing around and who knows where Buddy Holly could have fired that shot. He was even the one that pulled the trigger wherever they had decided to do some target practice. The big bopper is buried in Beaumont, Texas at Forest Lawn Cemetery. Richard Valenzuela, a.k.a. Richie Valens, who was 17. He was from Pacoima, California. His father encouraged him to play guitar and trumpet and later taught him the drums. In 1957, at 15 years old, he was attending Pacoima Junior High. He was attending the funeral of his grandfather when the Pacoima mid-air collision occurred. What happened was a Douglas DC-78 collided with a U.S. Air Force Northrop F-89 Scorpion and crashed into the schoolyard at Pacoima Junior High. Due to this, Richie Valens had recurring nightmares of this, which led to his fear of flying. He was discovered by Bob Keene, the owner of Delphi Records, as he was given a tip in May of 1958 by a San Fernando High School student, Doug Machia. He signed Valens on May 27th, 1958. In the fall of 1958, Richie drops out of school due to the demands of his career. He's known for La Bamba and Donna. Donna was the A-side. And La Bamba, like Chantilly Lace, was originally the B-side to that record. Donna Ludwig was his high school sweetheart from 1957 until his death. I met Richie when I was 15 at a car club party, and I started dating him after I saw him later on in school. And he, gosh, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Named after yourself. I heard it on the telephone. Uh, Richie sang it to me, and he just said that he wrote a song for me and um, didn't tell me he was going to record it. And about a couple months later, I was driving down the street and all, with all my friends, and it was <laughs> on the radio, so it was great. You were just driving along? Nothing yes, more I had no that. idea. You suddenly heard your, your, your own song? Yes. That must have been a strange feeling for you. Very strange. Very uh-huh. strange. I met Richie um, in 1957 at a car club party. We just started talking and he sang to me and uh, I didn't see him the rest of the summer until I went back to school and um, we started seeing one another. Everybody liked Richie. Everybody in school liked Richie. Here's an interesting fact about Richie Valens. His entire career, from the time he was discovered till his death, was only eight Months long. You're probably going, no way. It doesn't seem like that. But that is the truth. It was only eight months long, his entire career. 
His body was found 10 to 20 feet from the wreckage. He was wearing a black wool cloth coat by Harrison Drink, a black wool cloth suit, and a white shirt. On his right forearm was a tattoo with the initials R.V. His personal effects consisted of a silver crucifix and a religious medal, a brown leather pocket case, numerous receipts, several photos, $22.15 in cash, and a check from the Hollywood office for $50, along with a silver bracelet chain with the word Donna attached. He bought a home for his mother in 1958 at 13428 Remington Street in Pacoima, California. And recently I visited that home. Yes, it has seen better days, but you can feel the history by standing in front of a white picket fence and looking at this house that Richie Valens, which is a three-bedroom, one-bath house, purchased for his mom, where he lived before he died. He's buried at San Fernando Mission Cemetery in Mission Hills, California. I also visited the grave. It is something to stand there and look down at the headstone of Richie Valens buried next to his mother. I recommend everybody, if you're in the Pacoima, California area, to take some time because you'll be on Richie Valens Memorial Highway and go by the gravesite, the home, and literally two minutes from his house is Pacoima Junior High School, where not only that crash occurred, but also where I was able to get my hands on the vinyl of Richie Valens live in concert at Pacoima Junior High School. On the flip side of that vinyl is Bob Keen, the manager who discovered and signed Richie Valens and gave us some insight in some of the music that Richie had recorded but was never released. And now you get to hear some of that. To showing some of the recordings that may have been had Richie lived. These are fragments of ideas not yet polished or completed. Ideas that Richie recorded at my home from time to time as we worked preparing new material. Many of these tunes have no names. The first song you will hear is an idea for a rhythm song. And as far as I know, no lyrics have been written. track is a tune Richie called Let's Rock and Roll. Only part of the song was completed, but it had all the indications of being another Come On, Let's Go. A perfect cross-section of the great Richie Valens 
singing the songs he would have made famous had he lived. Just hearing those clips just really hits home on how much America lost with these icons and these legends and what they could have been had they lived. The last person we're going to talk about is definitely not the least. Probably the most important of everything is Charles Hardin Holly, spelled H-O-L-L-E-Y, also known as Buddy Holly, H-O-L-L-Y. It was moved from Holly E-Y to Holly without it, the E. After somebody wrote H-O-L-L-Y on a check, and Buddy just let it go. Buddy Holly was known for many hits. Some of his more popular ones that you may have heard of, That'll Be the Day, Peggy Sue, and Oh Boy. He attended Lubbock High School in Texas. He made his first appearance on local television in 1952. In 1955, after seeing Elvis, he decided to pursue a career in music. Some regard Buddy as the artist who defined the traditional rock and roll with a lineup of two guitars, bass, and drums. In 1956, Decca Label released his single, Blue Days, Black Nights. Buddy Holly and the Crickets were from 1956 to 1958 as they split in December of 58. Why? Basically a difference between Buddy's ambition which you'll hear in an interview coming up, and musical taste. Waylon Jennings took over as bass, and Tommy Alsop took over as guitar, and Carl Bunch replaced Jerry Allison on the drums. The other two original members of the Crickets were Nicky Sullivan and Joe Malden. October 21st of 1958 was the final recording session known as the String Sessions, and they recorded four songs in three and a half hours. Those four songs are True Love Ways, Moon Dreams, Raining in My Heart, and It Doesn't Matter Anymore. And to me, maybe the best four songs Buddy Holly ever did. If you haven't heard them, pull them up. Buddy Holly wrote 30 songs, people, in just 18 months. And many have been covered and remade. 
Let's hear an interview from Roy Orbison when he met Buddy Holly. Here, Roy Orbison tells us about his first meeting with Buddy Holly in Lubbock, Texas. Buddy and the Crickets came backstage and said hello and, and introduced themselves. And to me, they were just, they were a, lo- a local group. And uh, then a little bit later, shortly thereafter, I heard a record on some station in West Texas by Buddy Holly. And it was his first record, Blue Days, Black Nights. And... Uh, first record that I know of that he right. recorded and uh, so he, then he came to Odessa and we were about 90 miles apart from Odessa 100, 120 from Wink, Texas and uh, so I went to his show and uh, it was out, it was at the football stadium and uh, called him down to the fence and we said hello and I told him I enjoyed the show so then we, uh, we kept in touch in a roundabout way as your careers uh, both rose. As the uh, careers both rose. I was first, and then he had to come see my show, and then I went to see his, and then pretty soon he uh, went out of sight with uh, uh, Peggy Sue, and uh, that'll be the day. That'll be the day. Peggy Sue was originally written as Cindy Lou after Buddy's niece. The title was changed to Peggy Sue in reference to Peggy Sue Getton who passed away in 2018. She was the girlfriend and future wife of drummer Jerry Allison after they had temporarily broken up when this song was done. Let's hear from Peggy Sue. The first time I heard the song was at Sacramento, Sacramento Memorial Auditorium with Buddy Holly and the Crickets performing it. And it was the first time I'd heard Peggy Sue. And I, and I was just shocked. You know, just, it was a total surprise. Total. Invited to the um, show uh, through Jerry 58. Uh, what was the concert? When was it? Uh, it was in Sacramento, California in 1958 uh, at the um, uh, auditorium, at the Memorial Auditorium. And I had been invited to the um, show uh, through Jerry, through his mother, through my mother. And uh, so it was quite a surprise. And you had no idea this song no, was coming out? No, I had no idea that it was coming out. Did it, was it right at the beginning of the set or, or what? Uh-huh. Halfway, right in right yeah, front of the concert, was they it? They opened with That'll Be The Day and then they started with Peggy And straight into Peggy Sue. Mm-hmm. Jerry Ellison played drums for Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Here he tells us about the early days. Buddy started out playing with a fellow named Bob Montgomery, and uh, like in, I mean, they grew up together in grade school and junior high, and they just did strictly country music. Like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny and Jack. Sure. And tunes like Too Old to Cut the Mustard and, and really uh, a hillbilly music, actually. wouldn't call it country, but really hillbilly music. Like Buddy played the banjo and I think the mandolin quite a bit. And they got a group. They had a country group together when I first started playing in the group and uh, had a steel guitar, stand-up bass. And uh, Sonny Curtis uh, played the fiddle in that band way back in, uh, must have been, what, 54, 55, along there. We'd play... Uh, like service station openings and just any place there was to play, you know, did so and played played a few joints, but we were really too young to get in the. Well, were you kids in high school, school at the time? Or? Yeah, we were still in high school when we started doing all that. We'd play weekends, you know, out of town, maybe a hundred miles. But uh, uh, well, I was, uh, I guess, I must have been a junior in high school when we started. And Buddy was a year ahead of me, and Sonny was a year ahead, and uh, so they graduated. Uh, they started doing more gigs when uh, when they got out of high school, of course. And, 
then you so. started touring. At one point, I understand that uh, Elvis Presley either played Lubbock or somewhere close. Did you uh, were you featured on that bill with Presley at that time? Uh, we talked. There was a guy named Dave Stone that owned the uh, KDAV radio station there, and, and we hung around the radio station, and so we got backstage at all the shows, and they let us like open the show when Elvis came one time. And Betty used Elvis's guitar and broke a string and did one of Elvis's songs, which was pretty, <laughs> pretty Is that fishy. true? Yeah. But, uh, I mean, uh, Elvis wasn't, uh, he wasn't on RCA yet. He was still on Sun Records. And uh, he was sort of like one of the guys. Uh, but, I mean, he was hot, you know. I mean, right. all the, all the, uh, I mean, he tore them up on the shows. But that, we weren't actually on the bill. We just opened the show. I mean, nobody knew we were going to. We just started to talk to somebody to let us do it, you know. So what what happened though? I mean, uh, did you start doing rock and roll? At what point did you abandon? The um, well, we did. So we'd play country shows, and Buddy got got more into playing rock and roll. And in fact, we went to Wichita Falls, Texas, one time, cut some uh, demos to try to get a record deal. And Bob and uh, you know, like the country band went, and uh, then we cut some uh, some demos that time without Bob singing country harmony, just like a like an Elvis type group, because we'd already got one. We'd been going and doing the Elvis kind of shows, right? In fact, I was out of the group for a while because Elvis didn't have a drummer. Right. And so uh, Buddy just had, like, Sonny Curtis playing guitar and Don Guest playing bass because Elvis, the next time Elvis came through, he had a drummer, so I was back in the group. You know, That's I, when DJ Fontana joined right. the Presley group. Right, uh, DJ came through the Elvis group. Just Scotty and Bill and Elvis at one point, that's what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, when, when he first started coming through. But uh, anyway, we cut some records, uh, some, like, duet country-type records, and then Buddy cut some, because Bob Montgomery didn't like rock and roll at all, so we cut some records like... Uh, I think we cut a couple of Elvis ones, and then some that would that uh, some I don't remember Hank Williams. No, they were they were rock and roll that somebody had written like trying to copy Elvis type writing. We cut those and sent them. And they wanted to sign that group, not they weren't saying Buddy Holly, but not the they didn't like the country stuff. And so then we said, okay, and sort of that the country deal was went down the tubes then. So that's when it became rock and roll for the uh, for the crickets. That'll be the day, really, from the John Wayne movie, The Searchers. We'd already cut That'll Be the Day for DECA, and it, you know, the deal where you can't cut the same song for a different record company. Right. And so we just called it The Crickets, and instead of Buddy Holly and The Crickets. And, uh, was the inspiration yeah. for That'll Be the Day really from the John Wayne movie The Searchers? Oh, yeah, Buddy and I had seen that uh, either the night before or a night or two before we wrote that, and John Wayne said that a lot in that movie. And uh, he said, "That'll be the day." <laughs> yeah, like that, yeah. partner. Is that it? Yeah, that's, it sounded a lot like that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we—that's—that's uh, that's definitely the where that came. from. I think with the legend of anybody, whether it be James Dean, I mean, we're talking about Buddy Holly, a man who, with your group, uh, you were on top of the heat for eighteen months before the tragedy. I mean, it wasn't like forever. Uh, no, it seemed like about three weeks. No, but <laughs> this was it by. You know? And amazing because. Very much like James Dean in the movies, mm -hmm. he only made three movies. You people uh, had maybe uh, six or seven hits, and then the tragedy. Yeah, and it's amazing how many records are out now that uh, maybe shouldn't even be out, like the demos we were cutting, and those records out, those ones I were talk was talking about in Wichita Falls, those are all been released now, and uh, I mean, I guess they should be, because anybody wants to hear Buddy Holly, you know, it's... But it's historic. I really wish we had time to do some more, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if we knew now. Because like Joe B. and I, uh, Buddy moved it. So much happened in the 18 months. Like Buddy and I both got married, which never helps a group. You know, no. the Beatles didn't even help the Beatles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, we got married, and, uh, and boy, that changed everything a lot. And Buddy's wife was from New York. He moved to New York, and um, I guess he moved up there about 
uh, at the end of, end of 58. And we stayed in Texas. I mean, we weren't like fighting. We said, well, I don't know if we want to go up there or not, you know. And uh, and Norman Petty is, was telling us, like, hey, you guys better stay here. You're going to go to New York, and uh, you don't have me to manage the group. Uh, just to, We were kids, you know. We, right. we handled everything just like kids. And so we stayed in uh, I mean, if we had to do it again, then it would be a lot different, you know. I know. Buddy was apparently, the people that I know in the business, uh, the other side, as I was going to say, uh, very demanding in the studio, and he could be nasty and stubborn at times over what he believed was right. Is that not right? Uh, well, he was pretty well that way about everything. I mean, he uh, he sort of knew what he wanted. You know, he wasn't wasn't very wishy washy about anything. But, uh, we know in the business, though, that that's how you have to be as a performer to get your creative. That's right. You can't let it, you can't put everybody's ideas in on everything, or you just have everybody's deal. I mean, if you know what you want, I mean, he'd stick with what he wanted pretty well. He wasn't good at compromise. No. Labats. <laughs> it's hard for me to compare him like to, uh, as far as studio and, and working with him goes because we were friends and we'd hang out, you know, from from school and we'd sit around and say, how can we make it, you know, like, how can we, like, not just play here in town and um, I was telling Les Vogt a while ago, like, uh, he was concerned about, you know, a three-piece group mm -hmm. and, um, and it's really easy with a three-piece group, like, you can all get in one car and just, you know, you can get one room to roll away or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. But we played, Holly and I played quite a few dance jobs around Lubbock with uh, just the two of us. And I don't know, uh, you know, guys, we'd have different guys playing that go be doing, you know, what, they weren't there interested in what the kind of music I think was the main thing that we were. Right. And, uh, uh, but anyway, so, I mean, he was like more of a friend. It wasn't like working with, working for him and it's like working with him. And we'd sit out, and, and like when I was talking, listen to that Stan's record review and all that, and we'd say, you know, how can we, you know, sound like that and sell records and and uh, get on, not sell records, but get on the road? You know, how can we be pop? And we thought when we uh, cut that first record on Decca that having a record out made you a star, and you all of a sudden they'd be calling for gigs. But we found out that wasn't the deal. You know, like you got to have that and have somebody playing it and buying it as well. You know. <laughs> Jerry Ellison, thank you. Oh, thank, thank you, Rick. Enjoy it. Rolling Stone magazine ranked Buddy Holly number 13 in the list of the 100 greatest artists. He was married to Maria Elena Santiago. She was pregnant at the time of his death and then miscarried due to psychological trauma. Right now we're going to hear a raw analogued interview with Red Robinson and Buddy Holly. Hi, this is Red Robinson. The show of stars for 1957 featured the changing appearance of rock and roll. The lineup for this event included Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, Frankie Avalon, George Hamilton IV, Buddy Knox and Jimmy Bowen, and the Rhythm Orchids, Don and Phil Everly, Paul Anka, and Eddie Cochran. Anyone even remotely interested in rock and roll today can appreciate the significance of the show. Even by today's standards, it was big. The lineup was not only impressive in its day, it was historic. I was most anxious to meet Buddy Holly. The show of stars was held on October 23rd, 1957. Buddy Holly and the Crickets had their first hit right up the charts to number three in August of 1957. The song was That'll Be the Day. In those early days of rock and roll, the disc jockeys such as myself who loved the music would listen to every single new release. And I mean both sides. I'd like That'll Be the Day and had played it for months before it ever made a mark on the national charts. You see, in those days, Cashbox magazine had a page filled with top ten records from various DJs in North America. And I was one of the few Canadians on that page. I'd listed That'll Be The Day on my top ten hit list for six weeks running. Holly told me that it was my listing of the song 
that brought it to the attention of other radio stations in North America. And on my 1957 interview with Holly, he makes mention of this fact. We're backstage here at the Georgia Auditorium for the biggest record star show for 1957, talking to Buddy Holly. Hello, Red. How are you? It's fine, then. Hey, I missed that phone call we had from Toronto that time. Yeah, uh, we couldn't get together on that somewhere or another. No, but I'd just like to tell you right now that your song, Peggy Sue, that you do on a solo there on Coral Records, is it Coral on the stage, too? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, it's doing real well. It's number seven song here, and uh, that's lucky number seven, as we say. Well, that's fine. <laughs> well, how long have you had the crickets together, buddy? Since January. Since January. Uh-huh. When did you uh, decide to form a group? Was it at that time? Well, uh, we just, uh, the drummer and myself have been playing together about four years, and uh, we got the other two boys and asked them if they'd like to join us and form a group. You write your own material, is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, who helps you with that will be the day? Jerry Allison, the drummer. He's the fellow who plays drums. Uh-huh. Where are you all from? Where's your hometown? Lubbock, Texas. Would you like to go back there? <laughs> sure. What's the weather like this time of year down there? Oh, it's not quite this cool. It's not. And it's uh, a little bit drier. Well, right now I'm going to put you on the spot. And uh, I said I asked you before and I didn't have a microphone with me, but I'm going to put you on the spot again. What do you think about rock and roll music? Do you think it is uh, on the wane or what? I think it's uh, going out quite a bit in the States. Down south? Uh-huh. How far down? Deep. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I mean, how long do you think it uh, will last? Another six months, seven months? Oh, possibly, yeah. I think after Christmas, things may change a bit, though. Uh, they, 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 it, it might pick back up, but I rather doubt it. Well, we'd like to congratulate you here, uh, because in a special way, because the West Coast here is sort of responsible for that. Be, that'll be the day to get it started, started out here. Yeah, that's about. what I heard. <laughs> and... Uh, we're all real happy about it here. Phil Rose of Campo of Coral Records and Apex of Brunswick in Eastern Canada uh, was trying to get through to us with you on the phone back there. How was your engagement in Toronto? It was real fine. They received us real well there. From the moment Buddy Holly and I met, there was a bond. He was a country boy with much enthusiasm. And he was happy to have a hit and was intent on adding to his success. On my interview, I asked him what he had coming out, and he said that they just recorded a song called Oh Boy. It was soon to be another Holly hit with the Crickets. In late 1957, this song rose to the top ten in Billboard. What you got coming up in the future for records? Well, we've got one that was just released the other day by the Crickets called Oh Boy. Oh Boy. You should be getting that just any day now. That's terrific. We'll be playing it just like the other one. That'll mean that you've got three songs in our charts if that comes up. (laughs) That'll be Peggy Sue, that'll be the day, and Oh Boy. Yeah. How do you think it compares with the others? Well, I like Oh Boy uh, better than that'll be the day, really. You think it's better? Uh Uh-huh, but... uh, of course, I'm no judge. <laughs> it's always the uh, listeners that decide the fate of a record in the end. We'd like to congratulate you, and I think you've got a good future in the business. One other question, buddy. If trends change, would you hop on the trend and go into the other, or would you just give up? I'd hop on the trend. <laughs> uh, because I'd prefer singing a little bit, something a little more quieter in here. What do you like uh, down in Texas, where you come from? How far is that from a place like Dallas or Crystal City? I mean, Texas is big, man. Well, uh, <laughs> our hometown, Lubbock, is uh, 280 miles straight west of Dallas. It is. Uh-huh. I think I'll get right off. Wow. <laughs> well, it's been real wonderful talking to you backstage here, buddy, and uh, I guess your act goes on pretty soon, doesn't it? Yes, it does. We're how going m- right after Pats. How many numbers? We do three. We do three numbers. What are you going to do up there? We'll do uh, Ready, Teddy, and uh, our new one, Oh Boy, and that'll be the day. Well, it's just been a real pleasure talking to you backstage. Buddy Holly of the fabulous Crickets. Buddy Holly was really a diamond in the rough. In the photo I had taken with him at the time, you can see that his teeth were in poor shape, and the glasses he wore were really not as stylish as they might be. It didn't matter to the audience that night. The music of the crickets filled the hall, and Buddy Holly was recognized by the crowd as something original. In his own way, Holly had come up with his unique sound by trying to incorporate some of Elvis Presley's grunts in his music. What came out of Holly was a sound that became uniquely his own.
He was the leader of the Tex-Mex sound that made its mark in 1957, 58, and 59. When Bobby Holly was just 22, during a tour with Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and Dion and the Belmonts, he decided to charter a plane to their next show. Richie Valens and the Big Bopper decided to go on ahead with him. On February 3rd, the plane crashed on takeoff, killing all the occupants. Don McLean sings about this in his composition, The Day the Music Died. I was on the air at KGW in Portland, Oregon, when the news came across the wire. It hit me pretty hard as I'd felt involved with Holly due to my part in launching his first recording. It was a sad day. Not since James Dean's tragic end on a highway near Salinas, California, in 1955, had there been so much remorse over a singing idol or a movie idol. We could all relate to James Dean and Buddy Holly. They were leaders of our generation, and now they were gone. And I can still picture that day. When the news came across the wire, I reached for a current Holly hit from the KGW hit rack and put my hands on his It Doesn't Matter Anymore. The significance of that title leaped into my heart. It was almost a sign-off for Buddy's career. You know, in many ways I can see now what writers mean when they say a man becomes a legend after he has passed on to his final reward. The stories of Buddy Holly's life are blown all out of proportion to the real man. As a young DJ, I was impressed only with the sincerity, the, the energy and the youth and the happiness of a young man doing something he obviously loved to do more than anything on this earth, to sing his song. Buddy Holly was a giant for what he offered the world in the form of his music. But he was an earthling like you and me in person. My personal memory of Buddy Holly is one of a warm, average guy that you'd like to call your friend. He was extraordinary by being ordinary in an entertainment world filled with giant egos and veneers. And I could see all of Buddy Holly that night in Vancouver so long ago because he was unguarded. He was a real flesh-and-blood human being. He'd not developed any false front. He was not a star that someone had manufactured for mass consumption. Buddy Holly was an honest-to-God talent. Buddy's personal effects were $193 in cash, two cufflinks, silver half-inch balls having a jeweled band, the top portion of a ballpoint pen. He was wearing a yellow leather-like jacket. Something to take of note, $11.65 was taken from each of the deceased for the coroner's fees. Buddy's signature glasses were not listed among his personal effects. They were considered lost. The spring after the snow melted, they were found along with the Big Bopper's watch by a farmer. They were handed over immediately to the Cerro Gordo County Sheriff's Office. They sat filed away in a manila envelope for 21 years. On the outside of the envelope was written, Charles Hardin Holly. Received April 7th, 1959. The envelope was taken to the county courthouse and got filed away in a filing cabinet. 21 years later, Sheriff Jerry Allen opened it on February 29, 1980, when he found them in the courthouse basement going through old cabinets. The glasses were returned to Maria Elena Holly. She sold them in 1998 for $80,000. They are now on display at the Buddy Holly Center in Lubbock, Texas. Buddy Holly is buried in Lubbock Cemetery in Texas. We have here right now, uh, as guests at the K-Top microphone, uh, members of the Crickets, the Crickets of Quartet, and uh, we have first on my left, Buddy Holly. How are you this evening, Buddy? Fine, Dale. How are you? 
Well, we're fine. We hope you are, too. Would you care to introduce for the, our listening audience the rest of the crickets that we have here? Well, uh, here's Joe Malden. He plays bass, and uh, Jerry Allison plays drums. And uh, the other one, Nicky Sullivan, is not here right at the moment. He's out on the stage playing, doing something. And uh, that's us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the recordings that you do have out right now? Well, uh, we have three records going right now, and... Uh, of course, the first one was That'll Be the Day, the yes, first one released. And uh, then we have a new one out by the crickets called Oh Boy and Not Fade Away. And then uh, there's one out, it's the same group, but it's under my name. I don't know why they did it that way, but they put one out under my name called uh, Peggy Sue and Every Day. Uh, how did you fellows happen to get the name Crickets? That's always intrigued me. We had to think of some name that hadn't been used yet, and Jerry came up with it. <laughs> so... Uh, Sure enough, they'd already been used, but it's a good while back, so it didn't matter too much. I guess that about winds up, and that's all the time we have for this interview with uh, the Crickets, and we want to thank the Crickets for taking time out of tonight's busy schedule for talking with us for just a few moments on the K-Top microphone. Well, uh, we'd like to thank everyone that uh, listens and uh, everyone that, that requests and likes our records, and uh, we'd like to thank you boys for playing them. Thank you a whole lot. Thank you very much, Dave. Listeners, go to the show notes and click the photo link that I've put there for you to see several photos of this story, including surf ballroom, the Richie Valens home, his grave, buddy Holly's crash site. Go to the show notes to see that all those photos. There was a reexamination in 2015. Some of the claims were, was the weight evenly distributed? As some people felt like, because buddy Holly and Richie Valens were on one side and Pilot Peterson and Big Bop were on the other, that due to their weight, the plane may have become unstable. My personal opinion, I don't buy that. Did Buddy Holly accidentally push on the right rudder pedal? The rudder pedal that I'm referring to is what controls the rotation of the vertical axis of a plane. People in Iowa believe that there was some sort of commotion on board. If you ask People that have been around for a long time, they all believe that there was something happened on that flight that night. And the people that I have talked to in the aviation industry have told me that in the event that Buddy Holly could have turned around to talk to somebody in the back and accidentally pushed on the right rudder pedal, the plane would have tipped to the right. But by human nature, your foot would come off of that. The pilot could have said something. The pilot could have tried to correct the plane. It's hard to say. I will say this. The NTSB, the National Transportation Board, declined to request stating insufficient evidence to meet the reconsideration. That is enough for me to say that those things probably did not happen. Here's something that I think is very good that came out of a terrible tragedy. Within months of the crash, official protocols were put in place to ensure the names of victims of traumatic incidents are not released until families have been notified. So due to the crash of February 3rd, 1959, that killed Buddy Holly, Roger Peterson, J.P. Richardson, and Richie Valens, we now have in place where the names of the deceased have not yet been released until the next of kin has been identified. What do we need today? We need an artist or groups to cover the songs of Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and Buddy Holly 
to expose these songs to today's generation, what would I like you, the listener, to do is simply this. Go make a playlist of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. And either enjoy the music if you already are familiar with it or become exposed to it if you do not. And I guarantee you, you have heard many songs by these three legends that you did not know came from them. My conclusion? The music didn't die on February 3rd, 1959. It's still here. What died? was American icons and legends whose memories have still not left. The one and only Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly. Hey, Buddy. How are you? How are you? Fine. Good to see old Buddy again. Uh, where are the other fellows? They're running around somewhere, Alex. They are? Uh-huh. Gee, last time I saw, I guess I haven't seen you. Have about I uh, in April, wasn't it? I think somewhere it's around there. Uh-huh. Yes, it has been. Where, what have you been doing and where you been? Well, we haven't been working all summer, Alan. We've just been kind of loafing and taking it easy and uh, running around some, enjoying the uh, what we hadn't enjoyed for the whole year previous, you know, all the work oh, going boy, on. Oh, boy, you worked hard that year. Buddy. So uh, we're getting ready to start in some new work now. You going on tour again? And uh, I think so, uh-huh. Buddy, uh, we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of flying. Yeah, we sure did. <laughs> You know, I was just in the town uh, the other day in Cincinnati. Remember when we landed there and uh, the helicopter had crashed that day that we got in there? That's right. And uh, we took the ride in there from the airport. And it reminded me of when we landed. We, uh, buddy, we played, I think we rode every kind of airplane there was. Imagine. <laughs> we sure did. Those DC-3s were really something. Uh, almost a... <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. Without the seatbelts, we'd have been right through the top. That's sure. For sure. Buddy, we had a lot of fun together, and I hope we're going to have a lot of fun together in the future, too, because you're just a wonderful guy, and... Say hello to Joe. Okay. Joe Bias. Joe Bias. <laughs> Joe Bias. Joe Bias. Uh-huh. Because he was always Jack a Joe. Cook over there. No, Joe, Joe the crickets is the fellow with the bass fiddle. And uh, we call him Joe Bias because he always was saying, Bias a Coke? Mm-hmm. Buy something. Buy a something. <laughs> Buy a candy bar. Well, we had a lot of fun together. And, buddy, let's get together soon. And thank you so much for being with us. All thank you. Alan, it's been my pleasure. Brunswick record, it's so easy and uh... Look in the sky.